Beth McGinnis. This is Here in Alabama. In this episode, you'll hear part two of an interview my colleagues and I had with the family of Alabama artist Thornton Dial. In August of 2022, Paul Barrett, Lauren Evans, and I sat down with Thornton Dial's son, Richard Dial, daughter, Maddie Dial, and grandson, Brandon Dial. We talked about the exhibit I Too Am Alabama, which Paul curated at the Abrams Engel Institute for the Visual Arts at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Lauren collaborated on a companion exhibit, I Too Am Thornton Dial, at the Sanford University Art Gallery, and there is another companion exhibit at Moss Contemporary Art Gallery in Birmingham. Thornton Dial's art is in the collections of major museums all over the country. But these exhibits in Birmingham constitute the first retrospective of his entire career and the first ever large-scale exploration of his work in his home state of Alabama. In part one of this episode, Richard Dial told Paul, Lauren, and me how it took the Dial family and even Thornton Dial himself a while to realize that what Mr. Dial was making was art. Not just art, but special, unique, important art. Art that many people all over the world would value highly. It reminds me of the saying that we don't know who it was who discovered the water, but we know it wasn't the fish. They're swimming around in it all the time. They don't have any perspective on it. It may have been similar for the Dial family. Thornton Dial's creations were around them all the time. It took an outsider, an art historian and collector named Bill Arnett, to show them how special Dial's art was. Paul used a fishing analogy to ask Richard how his father incorporated family life into his art. I know from you and your family telling me how much your dad loved to fish. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen the fishing lures and I've seen works on paper about fishing and I've seen sculpture about fishing. And eventually it gives me the idea that maybe he liked fishing. Oh, yeah. he. I mean, his, his mom loved fishing. He came up with fishermen, and his brother, Arthur Dow, I mean, you could just go dig a little puddle in in the front yard, put a little water in it, you know, and, you know, Uncle Arthur, you know, he'll sit there, and as long as that hook stayed in the water, he could see the bottom of it, he'd just sit there all day. (laughs) And he didn't really have to catch fish, you know. And to be honest with you, he came down here and he caught a caught a pretty good size fish and he broke his hook. And he came up to the shop, said, dang man, I said, I caught a fish down there that joke and broke my hook. So he went and bought some more hooks and he fixed them up some kind of way. He went back down there the next day, caught the same fish, and he came back and brought the fish up there and said, I just wanted my hook back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that thing tickled me, you know, like, I just wanted my hook back, yeah. <laughs> so the the things like that, when, when whether it was things happening in the neighborhood or things happening in particular in the lives of your family, right? those things, those events inspired a lot of the, the artwork. Oh yeah, definitely. I remember right. this piece, the, the Parade of Life. Right. Paul pulled up a photograph of Dial's 1992 work, How Things Work, The Parade of Life. It has miniature cars and figures, Legos, and other toys worked into what looks like a winding pathway vibrating with energy. 
faces appear along the way. Maybe they're in the parade. Maybe they're watching it. That has all of the toys worked into right. And I don't remember if it was you or Paul who was telling me that the toys began appearing in some of the paintings mm-hmm. when there started to be grandchildren who had toys. Right. Maddie says that was her daughter. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, she never did. Uh, yeah. 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 Did other people like start? Did he have a reputation for that? Would other people say like, "Oh, here." Well, it, 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 it actually started. It got to the place, though, that people would just bring, you know, yeah. things by and just, hey, you make art out of this, you know, and, and here it is, you know, this bring back some stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he kind of knew, he really knew the things around him, like everyday tears, you know. Now, all those dogs, I guess, and that uh, piece Jane from them. They, all those dogs probably came from granddaughter. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Jane Fonda has a very large thorn dial that is covered in their, their Barbie dolls. Mm-hmm. Right. It's called Trophies, the Doll Factory, dated 1999. Brandon says Jane Fonda sold it in 2019. She sold it. She sold it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, Kathy. It always reminded me of Barbarella more than Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> Richard reflected a little more on how the family evolved in their understanding of Thornton Dial's art. Growing up, Richard thought great art meant Picasso. Coming up, you know, and you had to excuse the family, I guess, and I, I think that's the way being able to accept uh, the, the situation where we didn't support Dad at first because... You know, he did these things which was like rare for anyone, you know. And when you like coming through school and think that only thing I ever heard about was like a uh, Picasso. <laughs> so I knew daddy wasn't a Picasso. <laughs> you know? Like, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, and I never saw a Picasso, you know, it was just the name that was out there, you know, and I could visualize that piece of art in my night in my mind. And whatever daddy was gonna do, it just wasn't gonna be a Picasso, you know? So, you know, so, so you have to really learn and then as you grow, you know, you start going to museums and finding out what, you know, really the, the art business, you know, once you get in that world and I, you must earn that. He told me, he said, Richard, I want you to go to Texas with me. And he said, I wanna show you some of the best art it is in the world, you know? And after that, you know, when I, looked at everything that they had in there and I was changed when I came back. Oh, I put daddy piece up against that piece any day. You know, like, okay. Because they, you know, and then they, they had a, you know, some Picassos there, you know, but I found out, you know, that to me, and I, I can't speak for nobody else but me personally. And I even went to admit, you know, where they got like Picassos, like old room you know. Me personally, as of this day, I'll still put daddy works up with me paper up against the Picasso. It's not because he's my daddy, it's just because I can. His works on paper just, you know, that would be my ideal choice if I had to purchase a piece of art, you know. 
Yeah. Well, if I remember right, the first time the Metropolitan Museum of Art put a piece of your dad's up, they put it up a- across the room from a very, very expensive Jackson Pollock. They did. And we found out early, I mean, later, that that particular piece, you know, they kind of rate art, like, how long it can hold, like, a person's mind span. And it was just many people who would stop and look at that as they would other piece, you know. I like that way of thinking about it, that you can tell something about the artwork by how it holds people's attention. Right. And I definitely see that in mm-hmm. your father's work. You just keep seeing things. You're right. And so if when you look at it from that perspective, then, you know, Maybe you're a little bit better artist than we all give him credit for, you know, because you, you once you start focusing in on it, you know, you can go to like a museum and, you know, you like walk through the museum, it's like a million pieces of art, all different kinds of art. And a lot of it, you just walk straight by and don't even give it a second thought, it's just a flash, you know. So once you do get something that really kind of holds your attention, it's something a little bit different that that really just kind of hold your attention there. And I heard that the way the museum's rated, you know, a piece of art, yeah. I look at a good piece of art, you know, some people walk by a piece of art, they become attracted to it, and they begin to look at it and stare at it. But there are some pieces of art where they will begin to look back at the person, never grab the person, they'll hold a conversation with the person because the person is so engaged into the artwork themselves. That's a difference, that's a different relationship and a different engagement with the artwork. Mm-hmm. I think you can find that and probably more dollars that haven't been released to the public than ones that have been released to the public. I was interested in what Richard and Brandon were saying about how great art holds the viewer's attention. I wanted to know how they thought art does that. Brandon attributed it to spiritual roots. Richard talked about how our paths take shape over the course of our lives. That got him thinking about his daddy and his mama, and fresh-brewed coffee 24-7. What is it about art and artwork that does that, that grabs you? How can you define that? What is that? Hmm, that's a... Uh, I think everyone has a root from our creator. You're, you, have, you are endowed with your root to music. It's, it's there. It was there probably before you ever knew it was there. It was something there about music before you knew it. It was called music. And I think we all have something like that endowed in us. You know, and I think for, for this family, it's creativity. I mean, understanding that creativity comes from many forms, so it's art to engineering. But I, I think in this family, it just got some of us got sprinkled a little bit extra. It makes makes a lot of sense, you know, when you add it all up, you know, because uh, I never thought, you know, I would have my life would consist of art nowhere. You know, I kind of like use my history, and I, I tell my kids that, you know, I try to use my history as a stepping stone for the future because if you look back at where you came and how you got there, you know how to go forward. But if you disregard your past, then you just kind of like, you don't have any boundaries sitting nowhere. You just there and you're trying to, you know, figure out what to do or where to go or what kind of person you really want to be. But if you if you look at the past, it's always that roadmap there that got you where you're at, whether you live to get 
like 50 years old or 100 years old, you know that way, the road that you came, it brought you to that point. If you stay with that, then you know you're more likely to go a little bit further, you know. I think you gotta have that past to be able to, to navigate the future. That's one been my guiding point in life, you know, and so I, I really try to tell people that's the reason I do the things that I do. Kind of like getting being in an accident, you know, the next day that accident is in the past, but you don't want to go through that anymore, you know. So you kind of like, if you just look at your past and see how the Lord maybe brought you through that, which cause all of us have ups and downs. A lot of times, you know, you get to the place where you don't know what to do. And I guess operating the business and all that and really having like deep lows and, and real highs, in some way, you know, you kind of wiggle your way through it. And I just don't think that you do that on your own. You know, you got to have some kind of like, I think God really like charts your course if, if, if you let it, you know, because all those successful moments, it's the points that he was trying to get you to. And if you disregard those things, then when you you wake up the next day, you really don't know what to do. You know, you just kind of bumming around in the world. So I just knew that past, that past is a blueprint for my life. Hey, even, you know, when it come down to, I get in a situation now, like I told you before, like, I don't know what to do, but what would my daddy do? You know, so I always go back to that. Oh, Richard, that's what you need to do. And then a word will always come to me, you know, like, and, and I'll get through that particular situation. You know. And, and I talk a lot, too, now about my daddy. That's because I know you all here to kind of write about him and, and uh, you know, tell other people about him. But by no means, I really want to leave my mom out either because she was a wonderful, beautiful person. She had a, a whole lot to do with the people we became because she she's a great person herself. You know. Did they tell you how your parents met when you were younger? Not really. Matter of fact, I probably didn't heard it before, but I got a great aunt down in Mobile, you know. I know she probably didn't talk to me about that before because she remembered when Dad was a kid, you know, so and they used to play together. Yeah. And your parents were married for a long time. Oh, yeah. I think Dad had married when he was like 20, 22 years old. 21 or 22 years old. Yeah. And they stayed together, you know, till my mom passed in 2005. What did your mom think of your dad's artwork? Well, I think she was, she had to uh, been around him, you know, and, uh, a lot longer than we have. I just remember... <laughs> I remember one thing for sure that changed her mind, you know. Daddy had work on paper and she had had it framed and had it on the wall. And I think the lady came in here and said, I'll give you like $5,000 for that piece. And back then, you know, I mean, I mean, $5,000 was a lot of money. And Mama reached on the wall and got him, gave it to her. She said, hold on a minute, let me give you a frame back. Mama said, nope, take the frame and off. <laughs> Gave her a new appreciation. Yeah, I'll tell you. The whole concept, you know, just changed instantly right there, I believe, you know. But uh, but she got to the place, you know, she really, really 
gave him a lot of support because Daddy had, like I said, he did so many projects and got in so many things. He stayed busy 24 hours a day. I don't know how he even got rest to even get back up and go to work, you know. Some of the things we talk about, some of the things we're too ashamed to talk about. But this guy was just a workaholic. You know, I tell everybody that. I mean, once he got in the art, I think he started convincing all of us. I am, you know, developing into an artist, and, and, and everybody kind of eventually, like, fell in line with that because you could just look and see, you know. But like I said, we... Still knew he wasn't a Picasso, but you know, what he's doing is great. So when you get to start looking at, looking around and, you know, discovering what is art, and it, it'll come to you, you know, that, you know, hey, Dad is, he's a little bit special here, you know. Why be a Picasso when he could be a dial? Now, there you go. But, you know, in my mind and what we was taught in school, nobody's gonna be better than a Picasso, you know. So, you know, and I like I say, I never, I never even saw a Picasso. It would just go to art class, and that's what they tell you, you know, like artists by Picasso. That's so. <laughs> so you, you spend the rest of your life looking, man. I just want to see one, you know. Like, <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, I think like that now, you know. Give me a thorn down. That's just me. Yeah. Was there coffee brewing at home like there was at the shop all the time? Oh, yeah. That's where it came from, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about 24 hours a day. Uh, 24 hours a day, you could go to my mom's house or you could go to the shop and you'd still get a fresh cup of coffee. I'm not talking about, you know. And, you know, it was like old guys and stuff that worked with daddy, you know, they'd just come around and bring a gallon of coffee and drop it off because they know they're coming back to drink coffee later on, you know. Yeah. A lot of the guys, you know, that uh, we used to work with, you know, would come by the shop and holler at him, encouraging, you know, even with his art and stuff, you know. And I think, too, a lot of them were really impressed because it wasn't me, you know. I mean, I, a lot of kids and things I went to school with, I mean, I was too busy, you know, to even spend time with them, you know. We started thinking about all the things that it really had to go process like making the furniture, you know, making sure the employees in, having the money to pay them off. I didn't really have time, you know, for my classmates and stuff that did come by, you know. A lot of those guys, you know, he would take time and drink coffee with them and laugh and talk with them. So I got to know a lot of them, you know, through them just coming by the shop, you know. And it's still like upcoming shows, you know, I think it's like one or two of those guys still living in them going still try to see if I can get in touch with them and I, they just love the daddy you know just as a human being and they probably get over there and show it probably spend the night you know just knowing that he did it you know they, yeah they uh, they was they were real good friends of his I guess he had been knowing them you know his whole life you know and they would be thrilled you know to know daddy had reached his level one of the guys you know well Several of them, they're still out there. I just hoping that I could find them, you know, because I never did know where they stayed at, but got around about where they stayed at. Yeah. You think there was anybody in Pipe Shop who didn't know your dad when you were little? No. Everybody knew dad. <laughs> everybody. Everybody knew dad. I mean, the whole Pipe Shop area, they knew dad. The whole Pipe Shop, everybody knew dad. 
Yeah. yeah. But this was a long time before anybody else thought of your dad as an artist. But it's still, you know, I think it's still a lot of people to this day probably didn't look at him as an artist, you know, because, you know, he met Mr. Arnett, you know, like mid 80s, and he moved here in 89, had a few pieces, you know, and a couple of shows around through here, but that would probably be about it. And nothing, you know, like what's taking place now, you know. It's a lot of people that really, really know him. They know a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, know the things that he used to do before he really developed as an artist. But uh, there's a lot of people around that probably still don't know that he did develop as an artist, you know. Then again, you know, word of mouth probably got around pretty good. But I'm sure it was some people, but really can't picture that in the frame of mind, you know. Is showing everyone a picture of one of Richard's works. In the late 1980s, Richard created a series of chair sculptures that grew out of the Shade Tree Comfort line of dial metal patterns. The arms, legs, and backs of Richard's chair sculptures become the arms, legs, backs, and heads of people sitting in the chairs. Or are the chairs and the people the same? You can see pictures of Richard's chair sculptures at the Souls Grown Deep website www.soulsgrowndeep.org. Is that the one you said is called Everyday Life? Everyday Life, yeah. You know, then those names kind of come from a little bit of like what I might be going through at that particular time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just recently just picked that up, you know, because I think, so okay, I'm going to create something. And you're kind of like stuck in this mode you know, like where you're at and how you feel at that particular time, and that's what pops in your head, you know, just like this, that gentleman. Richard points to the chair sculpture Paul is showing us, Everyday Life. Now, you know, he uh, he's going through some changes right now. He's, he's just not necessarily good or bad, but, you know, everybody think every human being got that point where, you know, you got to stop and think about, you know, what happened that day or what tomorrow is going to be like, or how do I get out of this situation. It's just everyday life, yeah. That's another thing about art, I think, that there's a truth in it. Definitely. When you say Definitely, that, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I've been there before. Yeah. Paul yeah. shows us another image. That one called First Date. First Date, yeah. Like I said, everybody been there before, you know. Yeah. And again, creating things like that, you know, you have a certain attachment to it, you know. It's like Dad probably never knew he was going to wind up being an artist, but if you look at his past and if he was going to be successful, his past already dictated what he was going to be. So when you create an art, those things going to come out in you that have a connection to the past and to the future because that's where you came from and this is where you're going. So, uh, what you're going through at this particular time. So. Anybody in particular inspire that couple? The couple in first date. I'm going to stay away from that situation. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, That's it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. I want to make sure I... Uh, 
have legs to walk with the mouse. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those spiritual moments, you know, of uh, earlier days, you know. And I talk a lot about my spiritual moments because that's that's how I get from point A to point B, you know. This one's called Moses. Right, right. This one's called Moses, and it's also pieces that was the Ten Commandments, you know. But I think, like, like I said earlier, you know, in creating, then that, you know, these thoughts get kind of stuck in your head, and the artist is kind of weird releasing it, you know, and then you can, uh, you can go on. But a lot of times, the good part I think about art, you know, is especially me, you know, working out of iron, and you probably can look at that and tell like what I'm going through. Uh, what I'm thinking at that particular time in my life. And uh, I think that when you look at my work, that's uh, those moments I'm kind of experiencing that time. Well, I know that this piece you made quite a while back. Right. Do you have any, uh, any memory of what made you think of the story of Moses when you were making that? I think uh, kind of like gold... Through those moments, you know, and I really believe, you know, it's just experiencing things that at that particular moment now that made me create, that's where it come from. You know, it had to been like a strong image or thought that I was processing at the time. Do you, like all the things that we've seen or take the form of a chair or are they starting with a chair and then? No, 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 yeah. no. Uh, you know, when you, some I think maybe some of the earlier pieces, the earlier pieces, uh, the late pieces, you know, is like really just created from just stretch, you know. Uh, like I said, uh, you probably look at all the daddy kids and we probably all got some of that in us because the way he started out doing all, you know, he reached back and grabbed some of the pieces and materials that he had when we started the furniture business. So I think at that particular time, you know, it was pieces and you, you develop as an artist. And then as you grow, you want the person that saw the last chair to be impressed with the next chair. So that forces you to grow, it forces you to create, and it forces you to get better to uh, keep people's attention. You know, if all of them was molded chairs, you know, <laughs> Somebody really say, I, I saw his most chips, you know. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of push yourself with these, with your imagination to create a little bit better. And I think maybe I just, lately I've reached that point, you know, where I want to like create everything from scratch, you know, like the whole image, you know, yeah. Have you ever seen a sculpture in a museum and wanted so badly to touch it? I have. I experience sculpture in a very tactile way even if I can't touch it. Even if I know it's against the museum rules, I imagine touching it. One of my favorite pieces I've seen in the Birmingham Museum of Art is a set of concrete benches that you can sit on. The sign next to them says so. When Lauren looked at pictures of Richard Dial's chair sculptures, she imagined sitting. But was she Moses? Was she sitting on Moses? There's something about just the ones we've seen here, as I'm imagining the figure of Moses, right. or the thing, like whether or not uh, the viewer or 
whoever is with that piece connect. Like I know it at the museum or gallery. You know, right. it really does though when you couldn't sit on. So right. as a viewer, I'm imagining like whether or not I could with my body, I could imagine myself being there and it's like Sit in my sitting room. And his Moses' lap, or he's talking about it right now, or right. he's assuming that role. Right. Like, he's stepping in the shoes, and then yeah. he, I think a lot about like the sculpture, how the, right. the viewer interacts with the work of the body, and right. there's something powerful right. about that. Um, I think that's the part I like to you know about creating the chairs, you know, because they are actually made to sit in. Yeah, and once you, every one of them is made to to so you can actually sit in one of them and come out a whole lot better than you would, you know, your dining room uh, <laughs> chair. That, that's the part about what I do, I think, that inspires me because once you sit in it, you know, you get the feeling that you're there, you're, you're actually being whole or, you, you know, you actually playing out that moment that I might have been in at that time. Yeah, I'm getting that a lot. Yes, yeah. from hearing you talk about yeah. it. Because I think, yeah. especially with figurative sculpture that's life size, it's, right. it's like this other that you can like interact with or walk around. Right. You can do that with these, Definitely. but you can then also become. There you that. go. You're right. Richards and Maddie's yeah. brother walked into the room. Uh, baby brother. And he actually baby in the family. Everything that I told you all about the way that we were raised up and way daddy raised us up. Uh, he's the, the spitting image of that because me and him, we even think alike sometimes, you know. <laughs> I mean, when we was uh, working at the shop, Maddie's husband, he would come by and say, man, I just watch y'all working. If you don't tell him to do anything, he automatically know what you want done before you even get to it. If you need to move this over there, move it over here. He automatically know it, you know. So, uh, yeah, me and him worked real, real closely together. And uh, a lot of times I, I get pushed and kicked by him. He's a little bit, a lot bigger than I am, and that's so that's a kind of <laughs> a rough take, you know, when he goes pushing you around, you know. But uh, that's my ace in the card deck right there. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to leave Brandon out either, you know. I know a lot of y'all have heard about it, but uh, I'm so fortunate to have him to work with the family on the things that need be to you know that uh, and I guess I go back to dad again you know it's like I have uh, sisters that passed you know but it's actually four of us siblings and Natty and my older brother Dan and me and dad always now he never would tell me to do something that Natty's supposed to be doing and he wouldn't tell me to do nothing that Donnie's supposed to be doing so he had each one of us, you know, so when something came up, he knew who to go tell. I don't care how many times he tell you, but that's your job, you know? So if he needs somebody to go to the store for him, he's gonna call Donnie, you know? So that's every time, it's the 50 times a day, and ain't nothing you can do about it. You just going to the store 50 times, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, I got to the place, you know, I could cut his hair. Now he wouldn't let nobody else cut his hair, you know? My other brother couldn't do that, you know? So. He had, each one of them had a certain task, you know, that it fitted your character. You know, you try to get people to fit into a certain character they might not, but I guess that's the reason we got along with him so good, because he knew your character down to your soul. 
that you, when he tell you something, you're going to really be comfortable with doing it because it's a part of you, you know. So, and all of us are different, you know. All four of us are different, and all four of us do different things, but uh, that's the way we were raised, you know. And I think I look back at it, like I said, look back at the future. I can't ask my older son to do what he do. Richard nodded to Brandon. It just don't fit his character, you know. And what he do don't fit my older son's character, so I had to pick out the one that is a little bit more comfortable with doing something that I asked him to do. There's something so special about that. I think so many people don't feel seen by their parents or by their family members. Yeah. Understood in the way you explain And I'm sure there are. Actually, in the family, you think like, all the siblings, you know, they got to think alike because they had the same mom and daddy, but but really they don't. So you to get along in the family, you know, you got to pick the one that, okay, I'm going to get this one to do that, and he'll be comfortable with that. You know, it's like my older brother, you know, things that he do, I mean, I, I just wouldn't be comfortable with doing it, you know, and so daddy, if he, that's what he want did, then he'll get my older brother, you know, so... If you look at family life like that, I think you can all kind of get along a lot better. Brandon observed that his father and grandfather both paid attention to their children and identified strengths and interests, all the things that make a human being unique. That reminded me of what Brandon said earlier about how the root of creativity is embedded in the Dial family and what Richard said about how the Spirit of God shapes his life's path. It also reminds me of what you were saying about how God shapes and directs your life. He's definitely, you know, uh, and I, I mean, I'll live by that. I mean, I'm a spiritual person, but, you know, I, over the last few years, you know, I started looking at that because I, I really want my kids to get off on a good start. I really didn't have a good answer for it, but, you know, it's like Sarah Lockett, you know, she would talk to us about, you know, a lot of spiritual things. I mean, they, they lived the spiritual life like I mean, every day, you know, it's like going to church every day. But and she always said that, you know, when the kids are young, they get on your nerves. When they get old, you think they're finna leave. But now that's the time when they get on your heart. Because the things they do then really, really matter. If it's wrong, then it hurts you to the bone, you know. So I was trying to come up with a way where I could kind of tell my kids and kind of have those so they could have something to direct them through life the way that I way that daddy directed me, you know. But you got a lot of people that want to be a certain thing, and that certain thing might not be what you were born to be. But uh, if you like the last job I had, I def that was the best job I ever had in my life. And how did I wind up quitting this job? You know, I mean, I had more money saved up in the account than I ever had in my whole life. And uh, the people loved me out there, you know. I could go out there right now and that's been, you know, like 20-something years ago. But they, the guys that I work with still know me and they still, you know, come safe with me good and be glad to see me. But that job... It's just the spirit. Say, well, it's just time for you to leave. No, I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I'm not finna quit this job. Like I was telling Dan, you know, like, all I knew is I went up there and told that guy that I had quit that job. <laughs> he had already quit his job. I couldn't leave him out there by himself, you know, like, okay. Well, I gotta quit this job, but how am I gonna tell this guy I'm quitting, you know? And uh, so I finally got up enough nerve to go tell him, you know, like, yeah, I, I gotta go. 
And I still didn't believe it when I left, you know? <laughs> and that was the weirdest thing I guess ever happened to me in my life. You know that, okay, I got the best job I ever had and I got to stick with this, you know? But, and the spirit said, well, Richie, you know, you got to leave. And uh, somewhere or another, you know, I, it was like my spirit went in there because I damn sure didn't tell, go up there to tell my boss, man, you know, I'm finna quit, you know? You know, so it directed my life this way when I quit, but I couldn't see it at the present time because I had I made the worst mistake I could ever make. But I, when I look back, you know, it's the best thing I ever did because I was here, you know, to support daddy, you know, and life wouldn't be what it is today, maybe if I hadn't been around him as much as I have. So, yeah. As Richard talked about how God's spirit had guided his path, he realized that what looked like a mistake at the time turned out to be one of the best opportunities he's had in his life. He even drew a connection with us, sitting there talking in his home. I really appreciate you all. You know, like I said, you know, it just, it, uh, you have to grow up in a community like we did. And when you get to a stage like this where, you know, people take their own time and come out and interview you and things of that nature, it means a lot. And I'm not saying I came from a bad community, we just came from a poor community. But, you know, in that community, like all elderly people were daddies and all of them, the women was mamas, you know, and they, they looked after the whole community and made sure, you know, that if you were growing up, you kind of stayed in line and all that kind of stuff, you know. So it's a nice community that we grew up in, but it was just poor. So to reach this stage in life, you know, it's really been a pleasure, you know, to have people like you all to come out and have a conversation with us. And that means a lot to all of us. Thornton Dial was a great artist. He didn't always even think of himself as an artist, though. Neither did his family. Through their relationship with Bill Arnett, the Dial family eventually came to embrace the art world and take their own place in it. Richard Dial and Thornton Dial Jr. became artists themselves. There was a time when Richard Dial thought great art meant Picasso. Now, he has seen his father's works hanging in the same museums as Picasso's. Richard talked about how the present moment connects his past with his future. If he stays tuned in to the guidance of the Spirit in the present moment, he can find his path, the path that holds true to what Richard is made to be. As Richard and Brandon reflected on how their family recognizes each individual's uniqueness, it occurred to me that creativity is not the Dial family's only gift. They also have the gift of seeing. Maybe it took Bill Arnett to show Thornton Dial to the world, but Thornton Dial was the one who could look at a plant stand or a pile of Barbie dolls and see what it could be. Thornton Dial was the one who could make the plant stand and then turn around and make it into art. Richard Dial knew how to make mass-produced wrought iron furniture, but he also saw art in the concept of wrought iron furniture. He saw how a chair could be everyday life or a first date or Moses. And here's the best part. The Dial family's gift of seeing extends beyond art. They see each other. They see the beauty and uniqueness of each human being. They see as God sees. 
Thornton Dial showed his family how to see art in the everyday objects of everyday life. He also taught his family how to see beauty in one another. I want to see the way the Dial family sees. Don't you? Throughout this episode, you've been listening to the music of Queen City Avenue, a jazz fusion band based in Birmingham. I'll do a feature episode on them soon, so be on the lookout. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. Mm-hmm.